Take your Bible and turn to Nehemiah chapter 9. Go ahead and remain standing. We'll stand just a little bit longer. Uh, honor of the reading of the Word of God. We honor it whether we sit or stand, but uh, because Nehemiah chapter 9 is rich with the people standing all day, in fact, uh, we will stand as we read His Word. We'll go to the Lord in prayer and then open uh, the last portion of this incredible chapter uh, that we've been in now for several weeks. Verse 32 through the end of the chapter. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully. And we have acted wickedly, our kings, our princes, our priests. Our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you. Or turn from their wicked ways. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruits and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress." Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document in the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Father, uh, it is our prayer now that as we walk through this passage of Scripture, you would reveal to us individually the truth from this passage, apply it by the power of the Holy Spirit, bring forth much fruit the fruit of uh, holiness, of life. And I pray that we would uh, leave this building in a different way than when we entered it. And Father, we also lift up to you as we have lifted up the Kennecuck uh, camp out this week. We lift up to you another group from our own church, a group of uh, students and sponsors who are right now worshiping in Barnabas, and we'll be selecting their campers today, and they will be ministering in the name of Jesus during this week. We pray for them. And Father, in all of this, our heart is that you might be glorified and that we might be strengthened in what we do and our resolve to put away sin and to follow you with all of our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. 
Do you know that God has always dealt faithfully with you? Do you? Well, at least one of you. Let me ask this. If you know it intellectually, do you always feel that He has dealt faithfully with you? Along the way, in every one of our lives, something has happened. Maybe it's the consequence of a bad decision that we've made. Maybe it's something out of the blue that we didn't plan for. Maybe it's just life, things going on around you in the world. And very subtly, very subtly, and I'm talking to believers here today, very subtly we begin to doubt God's faithfulness. Over the years, I can't tell you the number of times in, in one way or another I've heard a phrase something like this, can I really believe in and trust a God who would allow and then fill in the blank, who would allow something that is going on in my life right now, who would allow the evil and suffering in the world right now. And it's almost as if I go back to an old book, C.S. Lewis wrote a book called God in the Dock. That's an English title, and some of you, I saw Jan, you were shaking your head, you know exactly what it means. The dock was the place of a trial where a person to be accused stood, and he, he gives the idea that sometimes rather than us seeing ourselves as standing before the holy judge, that we have very subtly put God on trial when things don't work out for us the way that we have thought that they would. And so very subtly, I I hope you heard that as I was reading this, very subtly, God was on trial in this passage of Scripture. Yes, the Israelites over and over again said, we know that we deserve this. They had returned from the Babylonian captivity. They had rebuilt the temple, they had rebuilt the walls, and here they are, they're in a season of revival. They've been hearing, they've been listening to God's Word. They have recognized, and they have begun to confess their sins. But very subtly, look back at verse 32, there's a a hint of an attitude. Yeah, Lord, we know that we've sinned against you, but... Don't let these hardships that we're going through seem little to you. Take notice of these things, God. Don't forget us in the midst of the hardships through which we are going. And they remind us of the fact that God is faithful no matter what you and I might be going through. So we're going to look. You see on your outline there are several different breakdowns of this passage of Scripture and we'll go through those. Let's look at the first point and uh, try to pull some application out of it. God is always faithful, and He's steadfast in love to His covenant people. We see this in, in chapter 9. Well, in fact, we see it all the way through the Old Testament that God has consistently demonstrated His covenant loyalty and His steadfast love 
down through the history of his people, even when, we saw this here in this, this little passage, that even when we have sinned grievously against him, he has always been faithful. Now, if you'll remember, and for some of you who are with us for the first time, chapter 9 in the book of Nehemiah is one long prayer. In fact, it is the longest prayer in the Bible. Let me give you a couple, and we'll, we'll have a lot of scriptures that go along with this that you can write down and you can refer to. But here is a parallel passage of scripture that goes right along with what we are talking about in the prayer that uh, Nehemiah records for us. Deuteronomy 7, 9. We're going to look at several different verses. I couldn't get it all on one slide. Now, therefore, know that the Lord is God, the faithful God. This sounds familiar, doesn't it? who keeps covenant and steadfast love with... Now watch this because it's not mentioned in here, but it is mentioned in Deuteronomy. With whom does he keep covenant and show steadfast love to? Which group? Those who love him and keep his commandments. And look at the legacy to a thousand generations. And the other side of this. He repays to their faces, here's the other group, those who hate him. By destroying them, he will not be slack with the one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore, this is sobering, isn't it? You shall therefore be careful to do, he's talking to his covenant people. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. And because you listen to these rules and keep them and do them, the Lord your God will keep you with you the covenant and steadfast love that he swore to the fathers. Now, that you, you do know that Scripture is its own best commentary. And so we just saw a a commentary from Deuteronomy on verse 32. And we saw very clearly, I hope you see this, that there are two distinct groups. Now let me make a statement. We're going to come back and look at this in just a few minutes under another point. But I want to ask it as a question. Is, let me share the two groups first. The two groups are are what, according to Deuteronomy? Those who love him and keep his commandments. The the commandments, the, the keeping of the commandments always grows out of his love. And the other group is those who hate him. Let me ask you a question. Is God, now think about this, is God faithful to both groups? I'll give you a hint of where we're going in just a minute. Because it says it right here. He is faithful, first of all, to himself. You know what this passage of Scripture and this sermon is designed to do today? It's designed to be an encouragement to you that if you are in a covenant relationship with God, you will know that he is on your side. 
What, what we're really dealing with here is a worldview issue that is absolutely foundational to something that has become almost a byword here at Heritage. And, and it started with the book of Esther when we started studying through the book of Esther and we were learning about God's providence and how that every time the people of God found their backs to the wall, that God would step in and providentially move. And so it's not uncommon for somebody to come up to me and they, it's almost a gotcha kind of moment when they'll say, Pastor Marty, how are things going? Particularly with the kids. And without thinking, sometimes I start rattling on, oh, well, this and that and the other. But what they're looking for is what we studied back in the book of Esther, and which is true. We're talking about worldview. What is your worldview? And the answer to that question of how is everything going is everything is going according to plan. And you think of how many times in the book of Esther. Think of how many times, if you've lived a little bit of life, it has happened in your life that something is happening, something is going along, and it just so happens that God steps in. And that's what we see over and over again in the lives of the children of Israel, even through the book of Nehemiah. God stepped in, worked things, maybe not according to their plan, but certainly according to His plan, and that's not only on an individual level, that's on a corporate level and even a worldwide level. He was using, using pagan rulers to accomplish his providential plan. You know what grows out of that? Now, we say this, and sometimes we almost say it glibly, and I do not want this to happen, but God has a purpose. Are you hearing this? God has a purpose for everything that He has allowed in your life, even though you normally will not understand it in the moment. He has a plan and a purpose for everything in your life, and that's why, Jonathan, I am so glad that you used that song just a few minutes ago because it really gets to the reality of what we are doing. We're going to quote that or see that song in just a few minutes. But here's, here's what I want you to see out of another Old Testament book. And again, we've got several slides. I don't want to wear you out, but this, this is huge in terms of seeing that everything is going according to plan. And it'll be a little correction, a tweak of some of the way that we have thought. Oh, Lord, how long? And, and as I read through this, please try to put yourself in this particular situation. This is, pre, this is before the exile, okay? Habakkuk was, was speaking before the exile to the children of Israel. And, and, and as I read this, I thought, oh my, I, this has been my prayer sometimes, looking around and seeing what all is going on. Oh Lord, how long shall I cry to you for help and you will not hear? Feels like that sometimes, doesn't it? Or I will cry to you violence and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? By the way, this, this is a gutsy prayer. Okay, let's move on. Destruction and violence are before me. Anybody ever feel like that? 
maybe not in your own personal sphere, but in the the sphere of the, the world around you. Strife and contention arise. Is there just a little strife and contention in our world today? So the law is paralyzed. Justice never goes forth, for the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. And then he makes this statement that that is so awesome and so incredible and has been so misused by the American church today. Just like another passage that we're going to talk about in just a few minutes. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. I have heard this verse often used to describe a positive work of renewal and restoration going on, supposedly, in the church. Look around you and see, I'm doing a work in you that you would not believe until you put it into its proper context. you ever notice how context really helps interpret Scripture? Because here is the work, the great work that God was doing. Now get ready for this. Steal yourself for this. Here's the great work that God was getting ready to do pre-captivity. Here's the work. For behold, take notice, look, I am raising up the Chaldeans. Nebuchadnezzar, the rest of the bunch that came against Jerusalem, that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear in the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known in wrath. Remember mercy. God was going to do a work in the nation of Israel. And the statement that you would not believe what he's going to do, even if you were told, was essentially that he was going to raise up an incredibly wicked pagan nation to come and to take them away into captivity. It was a promise, and it was a warning. Now, at this point, we're getting ready to go to the second point, and you look back at the title of the first point, God is always faithful and steadfast in love to his covenant people, and what I've just told you may make you feel like that he's really not. But in fact, he is. And 70 years in captivity would not frustrate God's plan. And whatever it is that you're going through that God has allowed in your life for discipline, here's the promise that nothing can frustrate God's plan for your life. 
Now, if you're sitting there and everything is going along well in your life, everything's on an even keel, um, bless you. It's not always going to be like that. There will be times in your life where there's an uptick. And there will be a number of times when there is a definite downturn. Maybe it's captivity, as with the nation of Israel, I don't know. But one thing that you can know wherever you are is that nothing can frustrate God's plan for your life. Verse 32, let not the hardship seem little to us that has come upon us. And here he mentions the time of the kings of Assyria, that was Israel, and then Nebuchadnezzar coming against Judah later on. Here's the question that grows out of this. Is God in your thinking? That's kind of a silly question. I know God is in your thinking, but, but here's the further question of that. When you think about God, do you automatically see Him, as we saw in verse 32, as the great, the mighty, and the awesome God? Do you automatically see Him as the God of steadfast love? And from the verses we just read and from what I've just been sharing with you, again, there may be some of you who are on an even keel, and there may be some of you who are living in the downturn right now. And that's one of the reasons why we sang that old, it's an updated version of a very old hymn, God moves in a mysterious way. Do you know who wrote that hymn? Jonathan is saying, yes, I know who wrote that hymn. Do you? William Cooper. Do you know when he wrote that hymn? And he said these words. This is, this is one of the verses. It was after he had attempted suicide. gives a little bit of, of, of a new meaning to his title and to the verses that he wrote. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour, the bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. I have found, and those of us who've lived uh, for a number of years have found that no matter what we have gone through in our lives, in everything, in everything, the up things and the down things, God is there and He's guiding and he's sustaining, and he's protecting everything that is going on to accomplish his plan. Now, if you're sitting there and you're thinking, I'm having a hard time believing this, let me just share with you, you that your disbelief does not make what I just said less true, but your disbelief will drive you to greater despair. So what is his ultimate plan for your life? And if you're trying to figure out a path, a, a work situation or a marriage situation or, or whatever else, 
that might be. It's not that that's unimportant, but he has certain things that he's trying to do in you right here today. Here's one of those things. You would have guessed that we would come up with this. His ultimate goal for you, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to do what? Become conformed to the image of his son. That's what he's trying to do with you. In every situation that you're going through, Galatians 4.19, and this expands it out to, to the body of Christ here at Heritage and in your own local church, little children, for whom I am again in, in anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I, I think that's a great revival verse. And we've been praying for a revival over the last several weeks. You need to pray that the leaders would be in anguish until Christ is formed in us. And you could pray the same thing for yourself as well. And here's, again, the ultimate goal. For you to be like his son Jesus, be conformed to his image, Christ formed in you for the ultimate goal that you are holy, even as he is holy. Okay, are you with me? Is that connecting? You have an incredible opportunity to impact the world with this. This is a, I said this a minute ago. This is a worldview. And you'll either be driven by this worldview that God is working everywhere and at all times for His glory and for your good, ultimately. It's not a new message. It is just a biblical message that will help you to impact your world. Here's the way that could apply. You're talking to somebody and they're telling you their story. Okay, that is, that is a common thing that I hear today. I'll be talking to someone about the Bible and about the, just what the Bible says about living life and all the rest of that, and they will launch into their story. Okay? I mean, it, do you have that experience? Do you hear when, when people are talking out there, everybody wants to tell their story as if that narrative becomes truth? So that my story is true and your story is true and we'll all just get along like that. Well, let me ask you something about the narrative for your life. This is for you individually. No matter what your season of life, who is the main character of your story? Come on. Think about it. When you talk, and just listen to yourself talk, it's going to indicate who the main character is of your story. Who is the main character of your story? Who should it be? If you have accepted his design for your life, then your story simply becomes his story working in and through you. A friend of mine and I were talking about, boy, this will date us. We were talking about a, a seminar we went to years and years in, in, in a galaxy far, far away and all the rest of that. Started out called the Bill Gothard Seminar. 
Oh, I know he's fallen on disfavor, and rightly so. But some of the things he said were really thought-provoking, and, and some of those things really impacted lives. And he started out on Monday night talking about guess what? Something that we need to be. It, we this is worldview. He started talking about your identity and the importance of you, of you, 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 and, and me, of us accepting certain unchangeables in our identity. And that if you get God's view on how He has made you, instead of the world's view, trying to fit yourself into the world's view, it will make such a radical difference. And I had to look it up. We had to look it up because we didn't remember it. But he said there are 10 unchangeable things that have to do. You, you can look it up. You don't have to write it down. But stay with the point that I'm trying to make. 10 unchangeables that were prescribed before your birth. Your parents. Well, I can change that. Well, outwardly, yes, but no, you, you really can't. Now, Bill Gothard said this. Gender was the second one. Pe people are trying to change that outwardly, but gender remains the same. Physical features. Now, let me stop here. Do you understand why having God's point of view on him prescribing you before you were born and him not being finished with you is so important? Because a lot of people who take the world's point of view on this, here, here's their thinking. Okay, preacher, you're telling me that God prescribed me my physical features before I was born. And I look in the mirror and I see what I see. And if this is an example of God's love, then forget it. But if you will begin to see how God has made you and all your physical features are just a frame for what's inside. Children, young people, students, li listen to me. Do you understand that? Just a frame for what's inside, the, the glory of the character of Christ that comes out. Then he mentioned, you know, other things, siblings, birth order, ethnicity, time in history, place of origin, mental capacity, aging and time of death. And all of a sudden, we begin to see that if my story becomes his story working in me, that could make a radical difference in my life, in the life of the people around me. Point three. God's faithfulness to himself. Now, I, I mentioned this a minute ago. This is, gonna, this is really going to be key that you get this. Okay? I've been thinking about this for three weeks. Just came across it. I knew I was going to be teaching here. And I thought, wow, okay, let's look at this. We're going to go to the New Testament as a parallel. God's faithfulness to himself. It says that he's faithful. He is the faithful God. And let's parallel that with a verse that I hear, again, taken out of context and misused by a great number of people today. I'm talking primarily about Christians who misuse this verse. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. 
not always, but the way that this is commonly taught, unfortunately, and misinterpreted, it's a blanket. Are you hearing me? Many people take this as a blanket statement that you can live a life of unfaithfulness, disowning Jesus, and God will be faithful to save you. That's the belief system, the worldview that a lot of people have. That is not what it says. And we're going to look at the context because it'll become clear from the context and from other scriptures that this is not what it says. This verse, you know what this is? This is a promise of triumph, but it's also a warning. It instills confidence, and it should instill terror. Let's look at the context. This is verse 13. Back up. Here's Paul's thought in this. He toggles back and forth. If we died with him, we will also live with him. Wonderful promise. If we died with him, covenant people, we will live with him. Paul said in Romans 6, 5, For we have been united with him in a death like his. We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So when we come to faith in Christ, we die, all right? We die to the old. If any man is in Christ, the old things have passed away. All things have become new. So if you have died with him, then you're going to live with him. You get to experience resurrection. Is that a pretty neat promise? Yeah. Here's the next one, verse 12. If we endure, we will also reign. So we've got the dying, we've got the enduring. If we endure, that's conditional. If we endure, we will also reign. And Matthew and Revelation says this, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. You will reign with him if you endure. Now let's go back. Oh, let, let's just throw in this promise. I said it was a promise. It was a, an encouragement to those of us who are in Christ because sometimes we feel like, will I make it? Yes. Philippians 1.6 gives us that guarantee. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it. He will complete it. He will bring it to fruition until the day of Christ Jesus. In other words, this is a promise that God will always follow through in two ways. Let's go back and look at this. Boy, I hope, that, I hope this is connecting. Most of you I know are covenant people of God, but you're surrounded by a lot of people who are former church attenders, and they're banking on that first part of, first, uh, of 2 Timothy chapter 2, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, to somehow get them into heaven in spite of their life of disowning. But here's what the whole context says. If we disown him, is, does that really say that? He will disown us? This is not works. This is just the reality of true conversion. And that's why Paul tells Timothy, this, this is what you need to be sharing with the church. If we disown him, he will disown us. And then he goes on, 
If we are faithless, guess what? He is faithful to himself. He can't deny himself. God's grace never, ever, ever overlooks sin. It just can't. It's, sin is going to be punished in one of two places, hell or the cross. He never overlooks sin. And, and you know, when I first came here, I, I probably, I, I don't know, was it the wisest thing? Brand new pastor, 17 years ago. And um, the first book that I chose to preach through was Malachi. Some of you were here for that. And you stuck around. <laughs> A lot didn't. <laughs> and, so, and so the second verse in Malachi, and, and these people are struggling. They're saying, God says, I've loved you. And they say, how? How have you loved us? We're going through all this stuff, so how can you say you love us? Where's the gray? And, you know, we went through that book, and somebody who left our church uh, said, and, and I get it. I, I understand this. They said, we, in your preaching, where's the grace? Where's the grace? The grace is right where it has always been in the Word of God. The grace of God doesn't overlook our sin, Christian. It teaches us. It not only saves us, the grace that saves also teaches us to do what? It brings salvation, but it teaches us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing and the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself, watch this, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Again, God's grace never overlooks sins. Beloved, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Now watch. For certain people have crept in unnoticed to the church of Jesus Christ worldwide, but I think particularly in our Western culture here in America, They've crept in unnoticed, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and denying our Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Many of you have heard my testimony. I'm not going to give the whole thing, but, but just enough of it to show how this, this worldview helped me to return to the Lord. Raised in a church, profession of faith at a young age, 11. As soon as I got old enough, I was gone. I, I was out of there. Because I wanted to pursue some of the things that grace, is, grace just wouldn't allow me to pursue. But I did pursue it. I defected from God. I disowned God. So if I, this is real world, if I had come to you for counsel, Told you my story, raised in church, walked the aisle when I was 11. That's the old Baptist way of saying getting saved. Walked the aisle, baptized, and then departed. What counsel would you have given me? 
Oh, Marty, you know, God's Word says if we are faithless, He remains faithful, so don't worry about it. Thank God that when I was a kid, uh, and I don't remember a lot of sermons. You don't remember a lot of my sermons. I get it. But sometimes just one verse, one verse. And there, there was a verse along the way. Let me, let me flip over to this, this one verse, Matthew 10, 22 and 23. And when I was away from the Lord, there were a lot of things that went through my head. But when I, when I was alone, when I wasn't surrounded by my buddies and doing all the stuff we were doing, and I was alone, this verse that a preacher had quoted or preached, I don't know, kept haunting me. For everyone who acknowledges me before men, this is the disowning thing. I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven, but whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. And I, I just, I really wished I could rip that verse out of my mind, but I couldn't. And like I said, it haunted me, but it haunted me in the right way that the Word of God applied by the Spirit of God, and I knew that there were people in my family who were praying for me, eventually brought me back to see that denying God put me in a very, very precarious place. If I had come to me in those days, I would have said, Young man, let me diagnose, let me give you a verse that will diagnose your condition so that you can know what you ought to do. All right? Fair enough? Do all of you want a diagnostic verse today to, to show where you are? Doesn't matter if you're in ministry or, or whatever the case may be. And the diagnostic verse is this. And it's got the two groups that we talked about at the very beginning, the people who hate and the people who love. He just says it a little bit differently. Jesus was confronting some very religious people, and here's what he said. You don't believe in me. You're not a part of the family. You're not a part of my flock. You're not one of the sheep. And that's why you don't believe in me. Here's the diagnosis. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they are, present tense, following me. And like I said, if I were counseling me, I might have, I, the other, the me that was being counseled, might have, might have resisted and said, well, wait, 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 I walked the aisle and was baptized. I was told by the Baptist preacher, once saved, always saved. I, no, my sheep, here my, now, now what about the other ones? The people that are not their sheep, you know, they go away into everlasting condemnation. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they're following me. And I would have said to him, no, to me. I can't look in your heart and tell you whether you're lost and saved or saved. All I can do is give you God's word and you go into a closet and do business with God. So that he can show you the truth 
that right now, because you're not following Jesus, you may be saved and backslidden. You may be. But you have no biblical assurance that you can take away that says you're saved. Born again. A Christian, a follower of Christ, whatever word you want to use. Again, only God knows. But I would much rather err on the side of a, of a person feeling as if I'm unloving with, when the most loving thing I can do is confront them biblically. Okay, last point. This is important. I know some of you who were here last week said, well, you're preaching a lot longer than you did last week. Yeah, it, 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 it is. Um, here, we're almost finished. Last point. And this is a couple of things about this. You know where this, all, where this all lands? It lands in the lordship component. Making a personal commitment to Jesus as Lord is necessary. Verse 38, this could go and probably does go with the next chapter because of this. Here in the last part of chapter 9, the promises and the warnings are there. That's what we've talked about today. Promises and warnings. And so they made a good decision because of, well, they didn't keep it. We're, we're going to find that out in the next couple of weeks. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the seal document are the names of our princes, Levites, and our priests. In other words, they came to the single most important thing they could do. They said, we want our God to be our Savior and our Lord. Are you, oh my, I, I, I just, I hope this is not a rhetorical question to you. Are you willing to hear what he says and follow him no matter the cost? I'm going to make eye contact with everybody I can. By the way, I, I, I preach this a bunch of times for, to myself before I get up here. Marty, are you willing to hear and to obey him no matter the cost? No matter the cost. It could take some prayer, take some reading of the word, get some good Christian friends around you who will help you walk that path. But the answer to that needs to be yes. It is, listen, 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 it is utter folly to think that you can live life as if you are Lord of your life. And the safest place you can be is in the center of His will with Jesus, the Savior and Lord of your life. And how do you do that? You're here today and you say, okay, what do I do? Well, you repent. Well, I already did that when I became a Christian. You don't just repent once. You repent over and over. You preach the gospel to yourself every day, repentance and faith. Christ died for sinners according to the Scriptures. He was buried. He was raised again on the third day according to the Scriptures. You preach that to yourself every day. Tomorrow morning when you get up, what do you preach to yourself? The gospel. 
Are you going to be sinless the rest of today? This is Sunday. Church, this is the holiest day of the week. Are you, are you going to be holy the rest of the day? I mean, utterly. Abs- perfect in holiness? Are you? Gonna, are you? Who do I need to pick on here? Gwen, is Lowell going to be perfect the rest of this day? No! <laughs> we are saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that not of ourselves, but we need to remember what we are told, that if we confess our sins daily, don't let the backlog build up. Confess your sins. Repent. Turn away. You know, if Malachi is not a message for today, then neither is Romans 2, and, uh, excuse me, Revelation 2 and 3. Because of the seven churches, New Testament churches, Jesus told five of them to repent and to do the works that they did at first. So the most loving thing I could do is give you the diagnostic, tell you what God's Word says about the seriousness, the the wonder of the promise that He will complete what He has started, but the seriousness of the warning if you are in that place of not following Him as Lord. I want you to bow your heads with me and, and just use this time to Do some more confession, repenting. Uh, Not because a preacher has put induced guilt upon you. It's always divine tension that we're after. The Holy Spirit will be faithful to show you. You can repent, preach the gospel to yourself kind of re-up today. Father, our prayer is that we who know you and love you will be quick to do that. A continual laying before you the ways in which we fail to live according to your standards that are recorded in the scriptures or how we have omitted things. And Lord, to, uh, to apply the blood uh, that has saved us to those things, knowing that you desire for us to be conformed into the image of your Son, and that's the ultimate goal. So we pray that for those of us who know you. Now, if there is anyone who does not know you, I pray that today that man, woman, young person, child, would be absolutely stricken with the reality that they stand before a holy God who is just. And they will realize that their sins will be punished in one of two places. God, I pray that you would help them to see the horrors of hell, but also the beauty of the cross, and to take their sins quickly to the Lord Jesus, who was crucified and buried and resurrected on the third day for sinners just like us. God, grant that it may be so. And help us to walk with you this day and the rest of the week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.